Hello, and welcome to the Spectator PM podcast. I'm Luther, here with Aubrey. Aubrey, how are we doing today? Doing pretty well. So I understand that you're coming up on a purple belt in Taekwondo, and I have no idea what that means. It sounds like it's sponsored by McDonald's, because that's the only <laughs> group I can think of with purple <laughs> imagery, but I assume that isn't the case. Could you tell us what a purple belt is? Yeah, so um, there, I mean, in Taekwondo, there are different levels of belt testing, and I guess it depends on which, like, strain of Taekwondo you're in, because what nobody tells you about martial arts is that it is incredibly dependent on who runs the school, what branch they're in. Um, so it's more confusing. So, like, my younger brothers are in a different Taekwondo studio, and they don't have a purple belt. It doesn't exist. They have, like, a high, I think it's like a high blue, which is the same thing it's just they're just using the same belt or a, a different belt which is weird um so essentially i'm going to try and double test in not this coming saturday but the saturday after um which is a little ambitious but that's a very homeschooler move it's just eh, good enough <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> go do that and succeed and uh that's Hopefully. awesome Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, yeah. I did my tip testing, so I've been approved to test for both belts, which is actually scarier because it's just like you and the instructor and they're watching just you, whereas in the test it's like you and like 40 other people. So oh, if you make a mistake, if it's minor, they don't catch it, you're fine. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um. Well, as for what I've been watching, I don't, I don't do anything physical. I sat outside in the sun yesterday, like a plant. Uh, <laughs> it was wonderful. I printed out my editing and just sat out on the bench in front of the house. Um, soaked that up for a bit, but I've been tracking the uh, Tesla Cybertruck. And so a vehicle that was announced over five years ago, I think, um, is finally going into production and so the media has had access to the truck and some of the promotional stuff is shooting at the truck with um 45 caliber rounds this sort of thing handguns and the stainless steel body is strong enough to withstand uh you know small caliber bullets slower bullets probably nothing rifle based but um it's an amazing thing. Like it, not only is it a monster, of course, uh, being a large EV truck, I think it weighs uh, close to four tons, but because it has these electric motors with instant torque, it can outpace a Porsche 911, like one of the premier sports cars while towing a Porsche 911. It's just that quick. That sounds um, like an Elon Musk move. Yes, it's like, very, what if? <laughs> very much from the mind of the guy who launched a car into space. Uh, but what I love about the Cybertruck, whatever it becomes, is that it's what EVs should be, which is nothing that's going to save the world, <laughs> but instead something that's just really cool technology to mess around with and to use as a toy as a weekend machine 
maybe someday as a work truck, um, but to sell people on the idea that electrification can work in some ways. Um, and that's all it has to be. Uh, so just taking it to the max and uh, goofing around with it, I love to see it. I mean, who's going to buy, like, what market is he envisioning? Because, like, your average semi-driver does not need something that can withstand rounds of bullets. You never know. You know, if you've got that South Chicago delivery or if you're moving stuff through That's Home true. Depot there, I think it's really to take the place of the vehicle you want to be seen around town in. Yeah, you can throw some stuff in the back, but it's really going to inhabit like that third parking bay in your garage where <laughs> instead of a sports car, instead of the Porsche, instead of, well, probably not the Ferrari sort of class, but the expensive toy category, that's where it's going to sit. And it is going to sit quite often. And then you'll use your other, your regular vehicles, your Lexus, your what have you, day-to-day. Um, -day. Um, but that this is meant for fun. It's designed for fun. Everything in the uh, design language is meant that way. It's ridiculous. Um, it's... <laughs> It looks like the most basic rendering of a PlayStation 1 era game. And um, it's just cool. And I, I like cool stuff in the world. Uh, we need more of it, especially with cars becoming more and more homogenous. Shake it up a little bit. <laughs> uh, and most of that's due to auto regulation from the feds, which... That's a whole other grumble party that I won't subject you to. Uh, but speaking of electrification, Cole, Aubrey, uh, we, we've got some uh, bureaucrats hot on the trail of coal and getting rid of it. What's the deal there? Yeah, so in some ways, this isn't really a news story. That was kind of what shocked me. That there, there are like headlines all over the place. Like John Kerry is promising that COP28 global elites that you know we're going to get rid of coal like well that was already on the agenda um but so in some ways it's not a new story and in other ways it kind of is so at cop 28 which is like one of the biggest global annual meetings of all of these climate people um they're like heads of state diplomats journalists whatever are all there and um the u.s special presidential climate envoy i think that's his title john Kerry. <laughs> A lot of lot of descriptors before his name now. Um, pretty much kind of went on the rampage against coal because it can't really attack oil because the COP28 is happening in Dubai in the <laughs> United Arab Emirates. And they were kind of like, yeah, can we like tone down the rhetoric on oil? So we're all going against coal. And uh, he announced that the U.S. is partnering with this um, power, was like power through coal alliance or something like that. I'm blanking on the name right now. Um, but essentially, we're promising to get rid of coal faster. There's no deadlines. There's no, like, here's how we're going to do it. It's just, we're going to do it, which tells me that it's like a bunch of empty posturing. But the Biden administration has been trying to do this for a while. They want to get rid of coal plants by 2035, which is a little over a decade. And 
at the moment, 19.7% of like the US electrical grid is powered by coal. Um, so within like a decade, we have to transfer that. And for context right now, like renewables, so wind and solar only make up, I think 21.7 or 21.3% of the electrical grid. So, which is way more than they used to, but still like that's a major push. Um, Doesn't that include hydroelectric too? Not according to the charts. No? Okay. Yeah. That I mean, that would make more sense if it did. But yeah, on the like little chart thing that the EPI puts out, it's solar and wind. Um, and then they've got a bunch of like smaller things that are like 0.8%. Like that doesn't count. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but I think the biggest issue, and this is what I was kind of reporting on, was like shutting down coal plants, especially shutting them down quickly, um, really impacts the communities the coal plants are in. Frequently, um, they're in poorer, more rural areas away from bigger cities. Um, they're employing people who don't have a college education, um, aren't super wealthy, or even like middle class, barely. Um, and so suddenly like cutting out these really large employers, um, is, I, I mean, it's, it can easily become problematic for these small rural local communities and in places where it has happened. Um, there was one story I was reading about a place out in Colorado where they shut down the coal plant several years, I think three years earlier than they had in, planned on doing it. And, um, it was a shock for the community. Fortunately, they're in Colorado, so they just became a tourist town. Um, mm. That's not the same. That that's not the case if you're like in the middle of West Virginia, though, or Pennsylvania, which has the most coal plants in the country. It's like sixteen or something crazy. Right, and these are simply being shut down. Correct. It isn't that they're being replaced by some new industry um right or that we have a plan for taking the employees and you know moving them into a new industry we just have like we're going to shut down the coal plant and eventually we're going to replace it with renewables well you know we have three thousand jobs programs <laughs> <laughs> we'll offer them nothing of use uh and I think it's especially difficult when you do say that these are not college educated people, that the ability to immediately transfer into similar work elsewhere, leaving aside all of the community institutions and things that, you know, create these social fabrics of um, interdependency uh, and cooperation. Uh, these are not easily transferred and Moreover, well, the uh, free trader of me in me says, well, you know, that's the market. Uh, one should not dismiss one's people having roots and loyalties to an area, uh, especially when coal is still a viable energy source. That's the thing that kills me is that it's being retired really before it's time and before its replacements are ready. 
Right. Um, and so even those who are against coal for its environmental effects, whatever those might be, uh, should be able to acknowledge that, you know, we're getting out over our skis because Democrats just love to do these sorts of signaling moves where, oh, look, we're, you know, saving the planet by effectively shuttering your town around you. Uh, you know, sucks to suck. So says the White House. Uh, that's not a direct quote. It's just kind of reading between the lines there. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it, it does kill me why they, they all fly out to these remote locations um these uh heads of state and their appointees their proxies and say oh yes we are excellent people and we're not actually going to do anything <laughs> of substance but we're all going to shake hands and uh take lots of pictures and somehow manage to make your life worse wherever you are back home like oh thanks <laughs> Glad we could underwrite that expense. Um, yeah, but speaking of coal, dinks. What in the dadgum is a dink? Because <laughs> I, I think I'd call uh, Carrie a dink, uh, just assuming that it's some sort of pejorative. <laughs> what, what actually is a dink? I understand you and uh, Mary wrote about this. Yeah, so... Um, essentially, there's this trend on social media uh, where these young couples, so dual income, no kids is what DINKS stands for, the acronym. Um, and they're pretty much just, you know, showing everybody what their life looks like and making it look super glamorous. Like, you can go out and eat every night if you don't have kids, which is technically true, maybe not desirable. Or like, you can go to Florida on vacation at the you know drop of a hat i'm like that'd be also true although you have you do have dual income so you have to figure that one out but it's one of those things where like it's young mostly millennial couples for now because i mean those are the young couples at the moment um who have intentionally chosen not to have kids or not to try not to like at all do the whole kid thing whatsoever and instead just spend all of their money um, intentionally with the goal of not having to pass it down. So, yeah. And are these being millennials, I, I guess I'd assume that they probably haven't paid off their student loan debt yet. One would suppose that. Yeah. And how much of this sort of industry or movement is <laughs> just leaving aside their financial obligations to go to oh what was what is that fun land in um pinocchio oh fun island uh something like that pleasure island that sounds right it's been years since i've read pinocchio that's actually one of those like creepy kids books this is way off on a tangent it's a creepy kid book kind of like um Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which legitimately scared me as a small child. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, deferred responsibility seems to be a really solid through line here with the dinkage. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a weird movement. 
Um, apparently the term is older though. It's from the 1980s, which actually makes a whole lot of sense when you think about it. It's like tail end of the sexual revolution. And I knew we were gonna get the <laughs> the, the fish shaking at the sexual revolution. I was gonna say it if you weren't. <laughs> I mean, you can blame almost everything on the sexual revolution at some point. Just about. So it's 40 years in the making, but it's one of these things that's been grabbed by TikTok and pretended yeah. that they invented the term, essentially. As I mean, it seems like they're a generation who, the kind of people who don't think that there was anything that came before them and are not convinced that there will be anything after them, which kind of leaves them in a very interesting spot. I guess that's how you would live if you didn't think the world was going to continue. Ahistoric nihilism. Woof. That's... <laughs> I don't think they're that. I don't think they think that technically of it, though. Yeah. Just perhaps hmm. their problem. So is there another point in history besides our modern moment where this sort of dink existence was possible? I think it, it must be a combination of one... Um, you know, being able to control in almost every way one's reproduction, but also the ability to travel and have, you know, uh, expendable income, exposable, uh, disposable income. <laughs> exposable income is what you make when you're a stripper, but <laughs> disposable income is what you spend when you have extra money lying around. Uh, so do you think there was a, a time or place where we could see some sort of parallel? I think there were probably individuals, maybe, who to some extent practiced it. But I think that the advent of social media making this a, popu like, a popular thing, and then the, like, yeah, the fact that we can essentially, to some extent, at, at least feel like we have control over reproduction really changes things like that has I mean that's as recent as the 1930s or 1920s whenever contraceptive pills came out um yeah so I, I guess it's the first time that we've seen something this drastic of this flavor I think that there have been there have probably been like earlier examples of similar you know similar approaches to life they were probably not couples though yeah probably i'm thinking of like the grand tour for young aristocrats in england yeah. where you know you go overseas but that's not really for young marrieds as much as it is well i suppose the honeymoon but after that maybe not but i don't think they ever intended to never have children right Right. Which, whereas the dinks are like, yeah, no, we're, we have no plans to have kids ever. Like, it's just not happening. And that's different. But it's also a denial, though, of like, and I don't know, like a, a deep human desire to have kids. Yeah. So what, what is the, the opposite? Would it be, I've heard the term silks before. Uh, single income, lots of kids, which I mean, is probably the the homeschool and Catholic um, alternative to to the true. dinks. Yeah. So, I do you think know. do you think that will become more mainstream, where you'll see 
fewer and fewer two to three child families and more with a whole heap of kids and then a bunch of couples uh, who are against the idea. It feels like it has been polarizing gradually over time where you have people who choose not to have kids or have one or two. And then you have like my parents who decided to have 10, which <laughs> clearly gives me a bias in this situation. <laughs> um, so I, it feels like it's polarizing. I honestly don't think the dinks is going to take off as like a huge cultural phenomenon that's going to last for decades only because like it denies something intrinsically human and it denies part of the natural law. And I don't think that it can be maintained for an incredibly long period of time. Like, I think even by the time these people, these couples are 40 or 50, they're going to regret their decision. And yeah. Yeah, I, my concern is that dinks will influence how a public responds to children in public where so many right. spaces are becoming um, adultized or deferential to the interests and preferences of adults and give almost no thought to incorporating children into a space. I mean, the- I mean, that's already a problem though. Oh, I think it'll probably get worse uh, as the birth rate uh, declines and that these couples who have, it seems like something where they probably also cut off their parents. Like there's probably something there where a hatred of one's parents means you don't want to be a parent yourself. Um, these people won't understand kids, can't understand kids, aren't exposed to them or around them or take delight in them being in the public sphere and will be hostile out of jealousy and also out of, you know, um, the rarity of proximity to kids. I don't like the sound of that, but hopefully that's just conjecture. <laughs> <laughs> I've just invented this dystopian future. Uh, you may not have invented it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, may it not come to pass. Um, to our uh, millions and millions of listeners, go out, have babies, have have fun. That's another thing. Like you're just kind of denying biology at some point. Where like, yeah. um, a man and a woman in a married relationship, there's probably going to be a few points where even if you're trying to um, prevent pregnancy, it's probably still going to happen. And <laughs> you should have kids do that. It's pretty cool. Um, so then this week, uh, looking at Israel a little bit and domestically, the response to it, uh, we saw some Ivy League uh, presidents go before Congress and um, make a mule's rear end of themselves, I think is a fair <laughs> description. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that, uh, Aubrey? I mean, essentially, that over the last few after last two months now that since the Israel war started, a lot of 
college students, especially more liberally minded, have been rioting on college campuses. And there has been almost no response from the administration at all. So Congress calls them in, the administration that is, and um, yeah, and it turns out they could care less about what's going on in college campuses. And so it's kind of, it's caused a huge uproar, uh, especially in the media, especially among conservatives who are like, hang on a second, this is like blatant anti-Semitism of the kind we haven't seen since like the 1940s in America. Um, and that's kind of scary considering what happened right after that. <laughs> so 1930s, 40s, yeah. Yeah, and it's utterly baffling watching these executives, of, you know, the richest universities in our country, uh, most prestigious universities, go up there and suddenly start saying that we need to take speech in context, <laughs> where <laughs> terms like uh, fat phobia or um, standing up for bio uh, biological reality is hate speech, but suddenly calling for the death of Jews in Israel. It's like, well, you you need to understand the context of what's happening here and the oppression matrices, et cetera, et cetera. Like, no, <laughs> you don't get to do that. You're either pro free speech and people can say all sorts of heinous things and all sorts of correct things all at once, or you can say there are forms of speech that are simply unacceptable on our campus. And then you can have real discussion about that. But to suddenly shut the gates on the most objectionable, uh, most objectionable speech heard on campus in decades, uh, it sounds like the um, University of Pennsylvania's president may be fired still this week at some point for um, her failure to have a, a decent response for Congress talking about context. Um, Justifiably so. <laughs> I believe the school's losing out on $100 million that were to be donated to the school by um, wealthy benefactors. And like, yeah, good riddance. Uh, it's not going to make them poor, but it's not going to make them any richer. And that more than anything, um, knowing some university presidents, that is the purpose of a university president is to be a fundraiser. It's not really to run the school. It's to make the school heaps and heaps of money. So if these schools are failing to do so because their leaders are incapable of human decency, that's progress. It's demoralizing that it's taken this long, uh, but it seems like we might be turning a corner as far as um, American higher education and what is permissible uh, for these schools. That about do it on that one. All right. Uh, I hope so. and, and you wanted to talk a little bit about the further ridiculous lies of Joseph Robinette Biden. Uh, and we learned the good man's middle name today, and we just we couldn't quite believe it. But Robinette, what what can you tell us about him and his 
ridiculous um, <laughs> Yeah, so this is a piece from Scott McKay, um, who decided to chronicle things coming out of the White House instead of writing about the things he wanted to write about, which is, I think, how he started the piece. Um, yeah, it was just a funny, like, list of the things Biden has said and everything that's gone wrong um, so far, which is always fun to read. Um, but really, and Scott makes this point, it's really about reminding ourselves that these are things that Biden has said before we forget about them. So I think this, the particular one that kind of spurned on the article was um, something he had told a reporter about Hunter Biden recently and, you know, his son and how he had didn't know anything about his business deals, essentially just reiterating that again. Um, and yeah, it's, it's always worth remembering, like, before he, you know, goes back on his word, like, this is what he said. Now there's, you know, there's this mark in time where we have it recorded. So now we can go back <laughs> and talk about it. In like yeah, and that this has been his months. MO his entire career, that this isn't age catching up with the man. He's been, he's been a dirty dog liar his entire uh, uh, lying dog face pony soldier, perhaps. Uh, one of the greatest expressions he ever came up with, which in fact is another fiction of his. There is no such thing as a lying dog-faced pony soldier in any of John Wayne's um, movies. But according to Joe Biden, there is. So I don't know. If you subscribe to Joe's world, it exists. Uh, many things exist that don't for the rest of us. Um, but it is amazing to see him <laughs> invent um, new controversies for himself as well as uh, new historical moments where he was walking arm in arm um, with Mandela or <laughs> uh, Martin Luther King Jr. at various points. Um, <laughs> one of those Forrest Gump figures in <laughs> modern political life. Um, before we get out of here, is there a piece of media that you'd like to recommend to uh, the listeners? Um, well, Scott McKay's uh, piece that we just talked about is great. Um, yeah, I, oh, actually, I do have something to recommend. Um, I recently went to Half Price Bookstores, as one does, because why not? Um, it was a girl's day out, actually, the best place to go when you're it's just a bunch of girls. Um, and I found Andy Wilson's um, the first two books of his first series, which is the um, I think the first one is Dandelion Fire. I think or no, that's the second one. I have them over there. Hundred cupboards. There it is. <laughs> they're over there on my bookshelf. Um, they're just a fantastic uh, set of children's literature. Um, my brother and I read them. We were both a little bit older. But it was one of those books where we could really connect and talk about it. Um, he is a Calvinist who was very inspired by G.K. Chesterton, which I've always thought is an odd mix because G.K. Chesterton is so intensely Catholic. <laughs> but it honestly, like the underlying philosophy to his children's books is really beautiful. And also he's just a fantastic writer. Like the beginning of every story is this well-crafted like first page where 
it really draws you in and also gives you like something metaphysical to think about for the rest of the book, which I really appreciate, especially in children's books. So. Yeah. You mentioned Calvinism and Catholicism, and I, I would say that Calvinism is probably the most Catholic of the Protestant, Protestant sects in that a Calvinist and a Catholic both like big books, they like beards, they like smoking pipes and cigars, and maybe a little bit of whiskey. So I think in that leather-bound books that smell of rich mahogany, I think there's a brotherhood there. Um, the vibe is the same, yes. Despite <laughs> theological extent. differences. Um, yeah, some are Thomists, and then others are, well, Calvinists. <laughs> uh, big on the tulips, you know. Uh, for me, I, I recently watched uh, a Japanese animated film called Steam Boy, which is a sort of... Um, steampunk Victorian England, where instead of everything run by coal or by oil, it, it's expressly steam, uh, which has some physics <laughs> limitations. But it's really this uh, fascinating view of the West from a Japanese-centric, um, or from a Japanese viewpoint. And um, these Western powers are vying for this new um, steam weaponry that's being revealed at um, this London ex exhibition. And it's, um, it's all absurd. It's all huge. The animation's incredible. Uh, but there are many parallels to atomic energy. And it's interesting seeing the post-World War II view, uh, like there's this new Godzilla movie out. And again, that's coming from post-World War II application of the atomic bomb and what that did to the Japanese psyche, um, where the United States especially is seen as these warmongers. And, you know, if someone dropped a nuke on me, I'd be inclined to think the same, but it's also this Japanese revisionism where they don't really mention what was happening in Manchuria, like 1933 through 1945. Like there's a reason the United States was flying bombers um, over the Japanese homeland. And uh, it's a phenomenal piece of art. The writing is fine. Uh, but if you're looking for something kind of outside the mainstream, Steam Boy, I think it's available on Amazon Prime. Uh, definitely worth a watch. And crank the bass all the way up. The explosions are amazing. <laughs> uh, so with that, uh, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Spectator PM podcast. Yeah.